Good morning, goons. We're back after a long hiatus uh, with a special guest here, Brandon Michael. You've seen him before. He is a senior analyst at a top Canadian asset management firm. Uh, Brandon, how's it going? I'm doing great, man. First off, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back on the show. What a different financial environment since the last time I was on. The, uh, the world's changed. It's not the same place. Exactly. We have the highest inflation in 40 years, the strongest dollar in 20, black swan event with the war in Ukraine, the end of globalization as we know it. And despite all the doom and gloom, I still believe we're in a secular bull market for equities. Yeah, let's talk about that. I, um, I don't know where we're at right now, to be honest. So one thing that I've always said on this show, and if you're a new investor, markets go up with the least amount of people in them and down with the most. Investor sentiment is the worst that it's been since the great financial crisis. And I'm finding a lot of opportunities in this marketplace. Yeah, the uh, University of Michigan says uh, consumer sentiment is the lowest ever since they've had that, uh, that chart. Yeah, the interesting thing is we're technically in a recession. We've had two quarters of negative GDP, but the U.S. still has, what, over 11 million job openings. Consumer yeah. and PMIs are still positive. The unemployment rate's at 3.7%. That's at historical lows. It did tick up from 3.5% in the jobs report on Friday, but the Fed is getting what it wants. The Fed wants a weaker labor market. Uh, GDP uh, is moderating. Uh, however, uh, inflation looks like it's starting to peak. There's a lot of positive developments. And uh, going back to what we were saying before, you know, they teach you in school the market's sufficiently efficient. I don't believe that. Yeah, the efficient market hypothesis. I'm not a, I'm not a buyer of that either. I think if you're a long-term investor and you got guts and you got patience, it's a great buying opportunity now. Yeah. You just have to have a time horizon that's longer than a day, that's longer than a week, that's longer than a month. You have to have resolve. Absolutely. This is actually where you're going to get tested. Um, if you got money in the game, um, what's your convictions about your investments? Exactly. And I think we should just start flying through a couple of charts here. Um, Sammy, if you can pop up uh, the S&P 500 on the daily time frame. I actually haven't seen this in a bit. It's been pretty busy. Yeah, so we often talk about uh, a cyclical market versus a secular market. So right here, we look at the S&P on the daily time frame. We're clearly in a downtrend. Anyone with eyes can see that. We're trading below the 50-day uh, moving average, which is the blue line. But more importantly, we're trading below the 200-day, which is important because that's the uh, one-year trend. Uh, so we're trading below that by about 10%. Uh, the S&P 500 uh, entered a bear market earlier this year. It was down about 25% from the peaks uh, in January. Uh, we did, however, stage a breathtaking rally, one that's uh, unlike any bear market rally I've ever seen before. We rallied uh, over 50% retracement off the lows. Um, obviously, we're entering that week, uh, August to September period, um, Historically, if you look at like the last 150 years of data, this was always a weak period. Uh, and we have a little bit of event risk. The market's selling off ahead of um, CPI on September 13th. We have um, the Federal Reserve decision uh, on um, September 21st. Everyone's um, wondering, are they going to do 50? Are they going to do 75? Are they going to do 100? So during periods of uncertainty, the market typically trades down. But as you can see, 
Um, it's a negative chart. This would indicate, uh, just looking at this chart and all the other data that we have that we're in a cyclical bear market. Uh, what do you think of this chart, David? I think the big question is, have we, did we bottom back in May? Because we bottom back in May, then this is a pretty healthy pullback. I mean, it's expected, I think. If it didn't happen, I would have been worried. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, we definitely had that kind of waterfall action. I believe it was uh, kind of uh, early to mid-June. I mean, you see those gaps. And at that point, I mean, sentiment was the most washed out that it's been again since the great financial crisis. We were just kind of looking for that low. I think if it wasn't for the war in Ukraine, we probably would have bottomed in February and just would have been kind of um, run-of-the-mill 10% correction. Um, but so here we are. Uh, we're retesting the lows, which is great. I mean, very rarely do you get that V bottom. We had it during COVID, but I think that was a result of like super loose zero interest rate policy. Uh, now we're getting the retest and I really think it's, you know, it's how we bounce off of this level. Uh, and as we head into, as we get past those two events that I was talking about and we head into October, which is seasonally, uh, the, um, uh, the strongest period from October to April. I think uh, the markets should trade quite well. Uh, we have the midterm elections coming up in November as well. And typically, I'm not sure if you know this, the best year of the presidential cycle is the third year, the year after the midterms. And the year of the midterms is typically uh, the worst performance. When you, when you say the best, is the, the market performs the best in their, in their second year, you said? Yeah. So the, um, the two best quarters, actually, sorry, the three best quarters that you will have during the four-year presidential cycle is Q4 in the second year, Q1 of the third year, and Q2 of the third year as well. And I believe the average gain during that period is like 20%. That's, that actually is pretty interesting. It coincides with, uh, with Biden's, the bill that Biden just passed recently. Um, we can talk, that, we can talk about, about that in a bit, but <clears throat> the bill, <laughs> they project that the next uh, two years, up until the end of 24, they're going to increase spending by like uh, quite a bit. Um, almost half a trillion dollars. And so like, I can see why that would benefit the market. Like this is an infrastructure bill. Well, it's funny that you say that because I just find that such a paradox. You know, it's very counterintuitive. Mm. You know, the Fed is trying to dampen inflation and they're trying to raise interest rates. And uh, what we need is more austerity and not more spending in this environment. I mean, I think the real uh catalyst is going to be a peaking in interest rates and a peaking in inflation which we could see i think we've already maybe seen a peaking of inflation I think we'll, get, so. we'll get into that but uh sammy if you can pull up the weekly time frame on the s p yeah so this gives us more of that intermediate trend so this chart goes back to like the mid 20 teens as you can see we've been in a secular bull market for the last you know, maybe eight or nine years, depending on how you draw those lines. Um, so you may ask what makes this a secular bull market? Well, uh, while we are trading below um, the 50 week, which is the blue line, if you look at the purple line, that's the uh, 200 week. And we've defended that as support every single time. And you'll typically do that in a secular bull market. Yeah, I agree. Uh, even the uh, the recent like kind of relief rally we had that was surprising. I don't know if it was surprising to you or not, but it was pretty surprising to me. Um, it's like its strength and how quick the market turned positive. I think the market breadth is something that we've never seen in a bear market rally. Like everyone's saying this was a bull trap and that was just a bear market rally. I mean, I don't know. When you looked at breadth and you look at just everything rallying together, that kind of thrust is something that you get typically 
at the start of a new bull market. Obviously, we have some event risk and we have some seasonal uh, factors kind of weighing on us here. Uh, but we're respecting that 200 week. Um, I think until the midterm elections, we're going to have to form some kind of equilibrium pattern. And by that, I think we're going to have to form, you know, some higher lows and lower highs. I don't think it was a coincidence that we tested that 50 week, like bang on. Um, and right now, I mean, I know yeah, that was a 200 on the daily too, right? Yeah. 200 on the daily 50. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a four year average or sorry, the 200 is a four year average of the 50, uh, is a one year average. Um, but interestingly, I know you're a man of the Fibonacci retracement. Um, we've retraced exactly uh, to the 38.2% uh, retracement um, of the summer rally on the S&P. Really? I didn't check, but that's uh, very interesting that's to know. Against you. Uh, yeah, I mean, the way I see it, like, it's pretty rare, too, if you retrace the 3.8 and then we bounce up from there. It's like a that tells me this is it's not just any kind of rally. This is a very strong market. Usually I expect like 618 or something like that. But, um, or, but yeah, if we pull back to like a 386, um, that's like a lot of strength. Interesting. Uh, it's funny because uh, we respected that, you know, 3600 level. I mean, a lot of, um, you know, market skeptics said we would have to go to like 3400 and we would have to kind of retest those COVID highs. At this point, I don't think that's happening. I don't think we're making the lower low here. I think it's uh, time to consolidate. We're going to have a little bit of an equilibrium, and then we'll um, eventually make our ways uh, above uh, the 50-week. The 50-week is the most important factor here. If we can trade above the 50-week, we're back into bull market territory. Until then, we're just in no man's land. Yeah, I find it... Um... Yeah, there's a lot of bears that say we might we might have a lower low, but I, in my mind, I'm like, where's the supply going to come from? Because I, you know, I've, the way I'm looking at it, like a lot of all the loose hands got shaken out already, and I think the market should have priced in the um, the inflation, uh, the interest rate hikes already. So, like, what's what's going to where's the supply going to come from? Well, the bears are going to say a lot of things, and they're going to draw a lot of you know interesting levels here. But um, I think the most important thing. Uh, that's really how the market up has been stock buybacks. Like using Apple as an example, uh, I believe they're waiting on the S and P's like seven to eight percent. It's the highest weighting that any stock has ever had on the S and P. And this company, I believe they're generating like hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of operating profit, and they're using a large chunk of that to return cash to shareholders and buy back stock. So things like that. I mean, you got stocks like Meta, and you got stocks like Alphabet. They're buying back their own stock. And that, I think, is putting a floor on the market here. We are entering a blackout period in a few weeks, which is kind of coinciding with this September weakness. So, you know, weakness over the next few weeks, it's par for the course. Um, but again, as long as we're holding above that 200 week, that's a line in the sand. Still a secular bull market. We're innocent until proven guilty. I had a quick question. Do you, did you notice if the buybacks um, kind of accelerated in the last call it 30 to 45 days i ask because there's actually a provision in biden's plan where he's going to tax buybacks and so i'm wondering if people are trying to get ahead of the uh that that's interesting it's something that i haven't looked into but what i will say is that all of the skeptics have been saying that you know a lot of companies would be taking a hit to their quarterly earnings and that they'd be suspending buybacks and we haven't seen that. A lot of companies are actually, you know, reiterating their buybacks and they are buying back boatloads of stock. The only issue is liquidity right now. I mean, when you look at large cap equities, 
Unfortunately, they're a source for cash because they're the most liquid. I mean, look at Bitcoin as an example, too. Bitcoin is the most liquid asset in the world. So, you know, when people, you know, they there's a, there's a lot of reason to buy stocks. There's only one reason to sell. Right. Good so, uh, you know, if people need the money, they're going to hit bids. And they're going to sell. And um, that's um, that's these stocks are being used as a source of cash. How does this chart look on the uh, the monthly? Do we have we gotten there yet? Yes, yeah, Sammy. Can you pop up the monthly time frame? Yeah. So this is long term. This takes you back to like the 1980s, right? Uh, and we had like probably the greatest secular bull market of all time in the 1980s. The market bottomed in 1982. It's no coincidence. You know, we had the highest inflation rate this year since 1982. So you can. Uh, generate great gains in the stock market in period of high inflation. Um, so you could see like that was an incredible rally. Do you see that little blip towards the left side of your chart? Like we the first time we tested that 50. Do you see that, David? Yeah, I see it. That's 1987. What did the Dow fall in 1987? Like 500 uh, it was, points was it? I think it was 23% almost in one day. It's like Was that Black Monday? Yeah. yeah and you just see that. Points. You, you just see that and it's just like a blip on the a blip on the chart right there. Um, and that's what I would classify as if you would like zoom in on that time frame and we would look at the daily time frame from you know the late 80s, that would be a cyclical bear within a secular bull. And you'll see the same thing in the 19, you know, 1990, you'll see the same thing in you know 1998, Asian contagion. Uh, but then when the bull market topped in 2000, we entered a, sec uh, a secular bear market. And you still had cyclical bulls within that secular bear. But yeah, that lost. period Sorry. Okay. where not a lot worked. Like you see that double top from 2000 to you know, 2007. Yeah. yeah, we lost a lot of investment, investors in uh, 2001 because the dot-com bubble. A lot of retail went out. Which is interesting, actually, sorry, because this is interesting. 20 years later, uh, I, I, I can make the argument that retail's back and it's unexpected and they could be the kind of unexpected, unaccounted for party in the market right now. Yeah, retail's back, retail's not going away. I think the advent of like, you know, like high-speed internet and like mobile technology and zero commission trading, yeah. uh, that's not going away. Yeah. But if, if you look at this chart, though, the interesting reason, you know, why I can make the case that we're in a secular bull market and why this market has to be bought. If you compare this period to the 80s, during the 80s, support was always at the 50 month, which is the blue line. And we've respected support every single time during this secular bull market for equities. But then if you look at the period of the 2000s, the secular bear market, we breached the 50 and tested as low as the 200, even lower in 2008, 2009. I mean, that was a once in a generation crash, but you get my point. In a secular bull market, the 50 support, in a secular bull market, a bear market, the 200 is support on the monthly time frame. Yeah, that's interesting. Really didn't hold on the 50, I just went right through. Yeah, so I mean, right here, we're, still holding above that 50. Do we have to retest it? I mean, I don't know. I think that it's going to take some consolidation. Not only did we have a price correction, we had a time correction. Yes. And if you, um, 
mark this up to the midterm election, you'll have the moving averages move upwards. You'll have price consolidating trading within this range. And eventually, um, those two will, you know, go in sync. I mean, we don't have to touch exactly. We can sort of just hover over it. But at the end of the day, you don't want to buy something when it's so stretched above its moving averages. You want to buy it when it's closer to its moving average. I mean, you're just reducing the amount of risk that you're taking. So that brings up an interesting question because uh, you've basically taken the contrarian view that we're in kind of a market and you made a good case for that. So are people wrong to be in uh, value stocks right now if they are this value versus growth kind of uh, debate? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we've talked about this several times on the show. And what I will say is that my viewpoint on this has evolved, actually. Uh, it's no longer really value versus growth. It's all about duration. And duration is a term used in the bond market. It really is yeah. the guts of the bond market. So duration is a measure of how sensitive an asset is to a change in interest rates based on the time to, ma a time to maturity. So um, uh, how long you have to wait for your cash flows. So uh, value stocks are shorter duration because they place an emphasis on uh, short-term profitability, they pay dividends, and they're less sensitive to interest rates. Growth stocks, on the other hand, uh, you have to wait a longer time for their cash flows to come to fruition because they're capitalizing on current and future growth opportunities, uh, and they're more sensitive to interest rates. And in an environment where interest rates are rapidly increasing in 2022, uh, investors have been pricing in, you know, many, many interest rate increases. I mean, if you would have asked anybody last year if they saw 300 or 400 basis points of interest rate increases, they would have said that you were crazy. So yeah. investors have compressed their time horizon down to zero. So value stocks have fared quite well in this environment relative to growth. Um, growth as or longer duration assets have faced the brunt of this. I mean, look at the bond market. If you look at the TLT, the long-term bond market, what's it down? 20, 25%. Um, so, uh, and that's supposed to be an anchor for the market, the bond market. Yeah. And I think we're, we're, I don't know what the last numbers are, but most but growth stocks are still down like what, 30, 40, 50% even still. At the lows in June, I think it was like 60% of the NASDAQ was down like 50%. It was some crazy statistic. And I mean, when you look at the S&P or the NASDAQ 100, that's, you know, different uh, because, um, you know, we have a lot of those bellwethers, like the apples, for example. Yeah. Even NVIDIA was down like a lot. And these are like strong companies with strong earnings too. Like, yeah, these are very strong companies with strong earnings. But like I'm saying, when you compress your time horizon, you compress it so low, people want the shortest duration assets, they want income, they want security, and they want safety. However, 2023 has the potential to be a very interesting year. Because 2023 can be the year where everyone recognizes that inflation peaks, everyone sees what me and you see, and the market starts pricing in a peaking of interest rates, and the market starts pricing in interest rate cuts. And when that happens, investors are going to want to put their money towards longer duration assets. We're talking the NASDAQ, growth stocks, Bitcoin. Um, so we could really have a reversion to the mean in 2023. We could also have more of the same if inflation doesn't peak uh, and you know interest rates continue to go up. But 
um, at this point. I mean, you want to have a diversified portfolio, obviously, but I have more of a barbell approach. I mean, my three sectors, you know this, I like technology, healthcare, and renewable energies. And I find between those three sectors, the names that I have, I get the perfect balance of growth, income, and value. You're also going to get the supportive fiscal policy. That's those are the three that's going to be hit in Biden's bill. Those exact three. So you're right. That could that Biden maybe have set that those industries up for quite a uh, rally next year. Do you want to take a look at yields now? I have the chart of the U.S. ten-year yield. Yeah, let's take a look. I haven't seen it. We're we're, we're above three percent now, right? Yeah, we're above three percent here. Kind of looks like a head and shoulders formation, but we had a break of the neckline. Um, you know, we're retesting those 2018 highs. Uh, at the end of the day, I just want to um, sort of drive the point across that the U.S. 10-year yield is a really um, important um, indicator to look at because it's a proxy uh, for mortgage rates. Mm. When, when you look at this chart, what do you see? Well, I can firstly tell you this chart looks almost like all the other charts, whether it's two years or 30 years. Um, but I noticed that this recent rally broke a trend uh, to the upside. So, I mean, well, when I look at, sorry, no, go ahead. Because the two year is just, is just rallying like crazy. The two year and the US dollar are literally the two best charts on the planet. And here's what I'm wondering, is the US dollar not going to hurt uh, the American uh, economy instead of uh, help it? It already has. I mean, all of these uh, uh, multinational companies, you know, they're taking hits because, you know, it really isn't a strong dollar as much. It's a really weak euro. Yeah. And, and the yen, too. Yeah. Really, really weak yen. You know, I, I'm looking at this chart and it's like I'm thinking just fundamentals. Like, do we know who's selling? The, because I, I know yeah, the who's selling. We know who's, who's selling. Yeah. It's the Federal Reserve. They're selling now. They doubled their quantitative tightening efforts. They're selling like $90 billion worth of bonds every single month. And they're artificially propping up yields and weighing on the bond market and the stock market. I see. Exactly. So, um, you know, Jerome Powell, I mean, for a guy that was so sure that inflation was transitory, uh, the guy is just super, super hawkish now. Um, you know, he said, uh, you know, Jackson Hole, we were expecting this big speech. He was going to talk about a number of different subjects. And it was an eight minute speech, just really quick to the point. He's like, expect pain. We're not going to stop until the job is done. The job done being inflation going back to like 2%. Um, so, I mean, do I really buy what Jerome Powell says? I mean, at the end of the day, I judge a person on what they do, not what they say. And Powell, I mean, the inflation's transitory call, that's the biggest monetary policy blunder of all time. That goes down in the history books. So I find him forming kind of like a really bad pattern where it's like, like you said, he was calling for inflation being transitory when it was clear to us or everybody else like a month to like 60 days earlier that it's, it, it might be sticky. And then now he's saying like, he's wanting to raise rates when, when like, again, 30 to 60 days worth of data is saying like, maybe inflation is peaked it's like he seems to be behind always yeah he seems to be behind always and then when he realizes that he's wrong he shifts the other way like Hard. the pendulum just swings and right now he's full hawkishness yeah. and you know we had a um weaker than expected inflation report in july i believe cpi month over month was like zero percent 
Really? Uh, still, I think, what was it, like 8.7%, I believe, year over year. But as these comps start to filter through, these really strong comps, inflation is going to moderate. Um, and Sammy, if you can pop up the chart of gasoline, which is RBOB. So like, this is my favorite charts, like, that, this is my favorite chart in the world right now. I mean, gasoline, everyone wants to talk about how expensive gasoline is, but our Bob fell, gasoline futures fell from what, $4.50 to now like two fifty. Yeah, it's, yeah. And just to tell you my experience, I remember filling up my tank with gas uh in june i think it was two dollars and fifty cents a liter and i just filled the other day and it was like i think 149 yeah i think crude's fallen like 40 percent from the peak 30, yeah 40 percent what like the 120s maybe 130 level to like the mid 80s yeah. and i mean a lot of that is uh due to demand destruction you know fears of recession yes uh, yeah and also you know we're you know summer driving season is you know that's also coming to an end um, you know, we have more supply coming back on, uh, the Iran nuclear deal potentially getting renewed, although we have more headwinds from the Saudis, maybe cutting production. So it's a very dynamic market here, but I look at this and I take this as a big one. Yes, because what energy is like, what, 30, no, 40 plus percent of CPI, isn't it? Like it's, it's share yeah, CPI. It's like a third. I know that for sure. So like, I mean, so this is what bothers me. Like I, I bitch about this all the time online. Like you've seen it. It's like, I, call, I say inflation is synthetic as fuck because it's not like overall inflation where everything's just going up. It's like, no, there's like one giant source carrying the inflation higher than it should be. And what happens when that source normalizes or like goes back, pulls back? It's like, yeah, you, you put out probably the most prophetic story on Instagram. I just got to pop it up. I got it on my phone here. You said on May 13th, this was before inflation peaked, inflation peaked in the month of June. You said inflation is synthetic as fuck. It's the excuse to raise prices well beyond what is normally acceptable. Do not accept it. Do not buy anything that you do not have to. Let that shit sit on shelves. You don't have to wait long. They still have overhead. Let them bleed until they lower prices Then buy what you need, giving them the finger. Man, that was the most brilliant thing like all year, man. So, you know, congrats on that. I was so triggered. Thank you. I was so triggered when I wrote that. But then I felt vindicated when uh, was it Target and Walmart started uh, reporting like lower the lower than expected earnings and they're like the stocks sitting on shelves. I'm like, well, there you go. In fact, classic bullwhip effect. The interesting thing is though, in terms of Walmart, you bring that up. Uh, their grocery segment uh, did great, and I think that um, demand destruction is real. I think the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. Uh, you know, everyone's 401k is down, higher mortgage rates. That's having an effect on the consumer. And I think people may have not realized what you said back in May, but they're now by instinct following what you're saying just through human psychology and their spending habits. I think people are going down the value chain. Um, restaurants, for example, eating at a restaurant is very expensive. You have to pay for, you know, very overpriced food. You have to pay tip and tax, HST, uh, when you can just go to the grocery store and for the same price of a nice meal out, you can get groceries for an entire week. And you still have to drive to the restaurant too. Yeah. Wow. Great point. You got to drive to the restaurant. You have to pay for like very, you know, expensive gasoline. Sammy, can you pop up the chart? I created a chart here. I wanted to 
show the charts of Cheesecake Factory, which was just a random restaurant stock that I chose, and the chart of Loblaws. They're completely inversely correlated. You're kidding. So I started this chart March of 2020, really interesting time to, to start here. And it's funny that during the pandemic, when no one was able to eat at a restaurant, Cheesecake Factory stock went parabolic. And Loblaws stock, I mean, didn't do a hell of a lot when the market was just, you know, had one of its greatest rallies of all time. And it's funny, February of 2021, when a lot of areas of the market peaked, for example, ARK and the meme stocks and Dogecoin, that's when Cheesecake Factory peaked. And we were in the midst of the pandemic. I mean, nobody was going to restaurants at that point. So I guess people were just pricing in a potential reopening and Loblaws started going up in February of 2021. And Loblaws has, I think, went up maybe 70% from that time frame. And Cheesecake Factory stock has been, what, down 60%? It's just crazy. It's actually really like, have you checked out the correlation coefficient? It's probably like 0 0.8, 0 0.9. Like this is ridiculous. Well, what I did check out, I looked at a lot of different restaurants, a lot of U.S. restaurant chains, and all their charts look the same. I mean, the peer group is trading together. I just thought Cheesecake was like, a, you know, everyone knows Cheesecake uh, and Loblaws again. I mean, everyone in Canada knows Loblaws too. Um, you know, it's a big, uh, you know, diversified, you know, grocery consumer staples. Uh, you know, to your point about uh, eating out being expensive, the the, the trend of um, buying, uh, ordering from Uber Eats and all those other things, like soon as we opened for real, like the sales of for those went right back down because it's not cheap. It was convenient. We were forced to do it. But then once we have an option to go to the grocery store, we went to the grocery store and uh, spent our money elsewhere. Like it just dropped right off. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Uber because I think Uber Eats was what kept uh, Uber stock afloat mm. relative to something like Lyft, like Uber's outperformed Lyft tremendously. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, that, you know, helped them, um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, while Lyft doesn't have that. So um, again, I just, uh, I think that's, you know, just pretty interesting when it comes to Uber. But now I think it's biting them in the ass. Yeah, they're also doing groceries pickups and uh, they were trying to innovate. I'll give them credit for that, but none of it really stuck. Like they introduced the consumer to their services and the consumer had a good experience, but yet it wasn't sticky. Like they didn't go back for more. But it's it's very expensive. difficult to innovate when you don't already have like a base of profitability. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we look at profitable companies, you know, like Tesla or Apple. And, you know, like Apple wants to get into all these new markets. They want to build a car. They want to build a headset, all this stuff. Well, they're able to because they have hundreds of billions of dollars of cash. They can hire the best engineers. They have a great platform, a great ecosystem. They can do that. But when you're already burning money, it becomes very difficult to compete with some of the incumbents. Yeah, it's a good point. What else you, what else you got uh, going on here? Another chart I got for you, you know, we're talking about inflation peaking. Well, what about copper? We talk about Dr. Copper. That's like the bellwether for how the economy is doing. I don't have the chart of copper, uh, but, you know, it peaked at about, I want to say $5. Uh, you know, about a year ago, and now it's like, what, $3.40? Well, that's telling us that inflation's transitory. The other chart I got for you is gold, if you can pop that up, Sammy. Oh, I love talking about gold. Yeah, so we got gold here. I mean, I don't really know what to think of this chart because gold this year has had the single best environment to outperform everything. We've had geopolitical risks, like we have a war going on. Um, we have 
Um, I mean, we have a strong dollar, so that's kind of going against gold, but we have inflation. I mean, gold does well in periods of high inflation and low interest rates. So if we look at like, what is the real interest rate? The real interest rate is, um, is, uh, in, is the interest rate minus inflation. So let's say interest rates right now are like 3%, going to be 3% in a few weeks, and we have inflation at 8 Well, the real interest rate is negative 5 That's an environment where gold should really be thriving. And I believe looking at some of the gold miners, stocks are down 50% from the highs back in April or May. So that is really incongruent. Um, if you're a gold bug, I, mean, I don't know what to tell you at this point because the situation is only going to be getting worse for you as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates and inflation peaks. Um, real interest rates are going to start going up. So, um, well, would you agree that almost any kind of investable asset is kind of driven by a narrative, uh, like a story, like especially companies, right? And how like if people, how many people believe in this story? Well, the story was gold is the ultimate inflation hedge. And then you want to be uh, in gold, right? And it's like, like you said, this has been the craziest environment of inflation since the seventies and gold has done nothing. Yeah. Gold's done absolutely nothing. I mean, the one thing that I said on the podcast a year ago, a year and a half ago was that gold will get you 1% per year annualized over the last 200 years of data, right? So if you're trying to get 1% a year, gold is doing a great job and it's hedging you against inflation. The only problem is that you'd be doing much better in any single asset. You'd be doing better in bonds. You'd be doing better in crypto, stocks. It doesn't matter. Even homes, like if you have any money to park, a gold seems to be like the, the, the last resort where it's like you absolutely have no idea what to do with your money. Then you put in gold. Well, in this environment with interest rates and with inflation and you have to, you know, you have to spend money to store it and, you know, make sure that yeah. it's not counterfeit and whatever. I mean, it's not verifiable. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not the biggest proponent of Bitcoin, but I think Bitcoin definitely um, is more of, a, you know, a sound uh, characteristics of money than gold is. Uh, but Bitcoin also, I mean, everybody last year was saying that Bitcoin was supposed to be a hedge against inflation. And I mean, maybe it is if you look at it on the last, you know, two years, let's say on like a two year chart. But I think a lot of the, um, you know, dumb money really put the cart ahead of the horse on that one. I mean, we didn't start seeing the inflation until what, November. Um, and, uh, you know, the price of Bitcoin's down, you know, 60 to 70%. And I'm not saying that these assets are not going to perform well. I think that um, if we do get a peaking of interest rates, if we do start to price in some cuts going into 2023, 2024, these assets can all do great. But I'm not buying gold. If I had a choice between Bitcoin, the stock market, and gold, I mean, gold is the last one that I'm going to choose. Yeah, 100%. It's, it's interesting about Bitcoin, too, because um, I forgot who it was that said it, but it, they said instead of um, a barometer for inflation, Bitcoin actually is more sensitive to uh, interest rates and how. Um, how easily uh, companies can get funded or how, how, much, how much liquidity there is in the market in terms of money, like how much the money supply is in the market. And I think that's true because if you look at gold's uh, chart, it matches the um, creation of money quite well, like M2. Yeah, um, well, if you look at M2, I mean, M2, everybody loves to say that Jerome Powell had the money printer going and that we had the largest increase in the money supply like ever or since World War II. But if you look at M2 money supply, we've halted. It's been the sharpest halt in M2 money supply ever. We've never had that in the history of humanity. Uh, so I think that we're going to see the effects of that reverberate uh, in the next few years. And I think that uh, those that hold assets will be beneficiaries.
Because during inflation, assets will go up. Yeah, didn't M2 peak a few months ago too? Or six months ago, maybe. Like I, I know it peaked. Six months ago, maybe at the start of the year. Um, but th that's definitely, um, I think, um, going to be one, like, one of the biggest factors for the markets eventually going up. 100%. This is interesting. Gold is so useless. Yeah. Um, in terms of inflation, I mean, I'm not sure where you want to go from now. I mean... Mm. Um, Let's talk about Biden's uh, bill. The um... yeah, yeah. So you know, we've talked about um, the Federal Reserve and central banks globally trying to raise interest rates to dampen inflation, uh, which is completely counterintuitive in terms of what um, what governments are doing. I mean, the monetary authorities are doing one thing. The fiscal authorities are doing one thing. Does what Biden's doing, is that negating or blunting a lot of the effects of the Federal Reserve? Like, what do you think? Where do you stand? I, well, first of all, I want to touch on all the governments being, uh, being counterintuitive or doing counterintuitive things with the, uh, with the inflation. Like you have California giving, giving their citizens rebates for gas, for the, for the, for the um, increase in gas prices. So, so you, you, do you understand that it was the creation of money that created this kind of inflationary environment? And then now they're going to give money, just helicopter it to people to kind of combat inflation like that that's like, that literally is throwing fuel on fire <laughs> thinking that it'll put it out this is ridiculous makes no sense and even the um the student loan debt i mean that makes no sense i mean you're owed money and now you don't now you're not gonna be repaid for that i mean imagine if you were a publicly traded company like let's just say walmart and you're like okay all of our debts from our customers we're just gonna say you don't you don't, you don't have to pay that anymore. We're just going to forgive you for that. I mean, it just, it just doesn't make economic sense. I'm not in favor of them doing any of that. Like if you're going to have to wipe off debt, somebody has to pay for it. And I think us as a consumer, we're all going to have to pay for it. It's just adding to the deficits that we already have. So you make a really good point there. Um, because there are actually three people in that picture of student debt, right? It's not the universities forgiving it. It's the government, which, which is what bothers me the most. Because if it's the universities forgetting it, then they get to eat it. They're a for-profit organization. They get to eat the, the loss. But because it's the government forgetting it, us as the taxpayers, we're going to eat the loss while the universities still profit. I don't think that's cool, right? That's, what is that teaching anybody? And then what's next? I think we're setting like a precedent that you don't have to pay back your loans. Like, what's next? Is some big corporation going to come out and demand a big government bailout? I would argue that came first. We've had how many bailouts? Um, even, even as early as in the 80s, right? Um, we've, we've, we've started on that trend of bailouts. Now it just seems like it's expanding to different areas now. Hmm. But, uh, but let's talk about Biden's bill real quick, because I just want to talk, because we were talking about co contradictions, right? So... This is the, just like, like the overview of it. They are going to have uh, 437 billion roughly of new spending, right? This is supposed to be a bill that fights inflation. They have half a trillion dollars worth of new spending, right? But they say it's going to be paid for by 737 billion of, um, of, of income generated from their new kind of policies. The right. problem is their new policies are pretty much uh, speculation and it's all amortized over 10 years. And it's like you, we, you cannot predict what happens even three years from now. And so how can you be so sure these are the numbers going to be great? I'll give you an example. So they're, they're, they're spending 80 plus billion dollars, sorry, $78 billion to hire um, a bunch of IRS agents to kind of beef up the organization a little bit, right? 
and the thought process is that 80 that 78 billion is going to um, um, net 124 billion in new tax um, I guess people are avoiding taxes so they're going to claw that money back but how can you act that. I mean, so they want to tax us more on capital gains. My question is, what capital gains? I mean, in this environment, I mean, are there any? Yeah, so that's the big chunk of it. There's like a 220 billion of the of that. Is there a minimum, 15% minimum corporate tax, um, minimum tax they're going to kind of enforce? And here's my problem with this policy. It's like they assume that corporations are not going to adjust. They're just going to let let them do this, right? There's another one for stock buybacks. You're going to have like a 1% tax on stock buybacks. And it's like, what if they just stop buying back because you're taxing them? Like, do you not account for these things? Like, people adjust. So what do you think about, I mean, the midterm elections in about two months? What do you think? Is, is there going to be any effect on that? I mean, it looks oh, like yeah. some political gridlock and the market likes gridlock. Uh, do you think that, uh, you know, eventually, I mean, in two years, you know, Biden, you know, if you look at the uh, uh, election betting odds, it looks like he's not going to be in office. Do you think that some of this gets peeled back or it's a lot of this set in stone? Is it just proposed? I have a lot of questions. Yeah, I've, um, I have some strong opinions about that because I actually read that stupid 700, <laughs> 730 page bill. <laughs> and the more I read it, the more it made, made me upset. But to their credit, it, the bill is exactly what I think the Democrats hopes that it will be. It's basically a, a jobs program and B, it's kind of like um, a benefits and subsidies program. And it's all targeted at their voters. I'm that, make, that makes zero sense to me. A jobs program. Yeah, they're going because their largest spending uh, component is about 300 billion in um, renewable energy and EVs and stuff like that. But it's all it's almost all infrastructure they're good they're gonna give the dying automakers two billion dollars to buy uh to build uh battery factories right so that's just one example of what they're gonna do so it's it is a jobs program they even say in their bill that they're gonna they expect to to increase uh, increase jobs by in the millions but what the fed wants is less jobs and not more less so jobs yeah i mean whether we like it or not the fed wants to see people out of work right now it wants to see the unemployment rate go up it wants to see the jobs numbers go down, wants to see a weaker economy so they can get inflation in check. And it just seems like everything that the fiscal authorities are doing is negating everything that Powell's trying to get done, um, which makes me think, I mean, you know, one side's going to give. Yeah. One like, side has to give. Like, they're going to give um, $60 billion for, uh, the, for, the, for, the, um, for the environment. So they're going to hire people to go clean up certain areas. It's like, like these are all, some of these are, are like good things that they should be doing. But again, to your point, it, it runs counter to what Powell, um, Powell wants to do, which is slow the economy down. And here we are creating like millions of jobs. So I think that it's good. What's, you know, a lot of these things are great. Like I love, you know, like more spending for like autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, green energy, whatever. But yeah. this stuff in terms of the supply chain should have been done five or 10 years ago. Agreed. This is very true. That's I mean, a problem. And right now we're seeing, you know, the disruption of supply chains. I mean, that's nothing new. And they also have um, little things in there sprinkled for themselves. I, I found this on page 720 of 730. They, they're, they're appropriating. Uh, they, they literally put it right at the end so that you're not going to read it. So that you, you, once you see the 730 page thing, you're like, fuck this. Right. But they appropriated half a billion dollars for Homeland Security. Nobody mm -hmm. talked about this when they announced the bill, but half a billion dollars for Homeland Security. That's a lot of, um, that's a lot of funding. Like, 
maybe hiring more people, buy more equipment. Either way, it's to stimulate the economy, or it will stimulate the economy, right? This is just ridiculous. It's, yeah, I mean, Biden's stimulus bill and, you know, Build Back Better, um, all of that stuff was just, uh, you know, we didn't need stimulation. And it just seemed like uh, governments just tried to literally push more and more stimulation on us when we actually needed more austerity and more actually spending cuts. Do you, I don't know if any president has the gut, has the guts to go the austerity route anymore. This world because you will not get elected. Yeah. So, so that's, I think that speaks the most of this contradiction of a bill right now, because they're, they're calling it the bill to kind of like curb inflation. And yet there's almost uh, half a trillion dollars worth of new spending in there, all new programs. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just the, the, the bill to cause more inflation. Luckily, the good thing is, as you said, I think a lot of this inflation is synthetic and a lot of this inflation is going to eventually be transitory when we look back, you know, two to three years from now. You know, I could see the inflation rate, you know, moderating once we get the August numbers. I mean, for sure it does with gasoline prices and energy prices and, you know, used cars going down. Uh, you know, maybe next year at this time, optimistically speaking, we're down to 4%. And maybe we can eventually get back down to 2%. But I think the Fed will be that sensitive. Eh? They'll just start lowering the rates. I mean, they, they, have, they already have. We went, this has been the sharpest increase, you know, in terms of magnitude, sharpest increases in rates ever. I mean, we went from zero, yeah. like zero interest rate policy to what's going to be the Fed's funds futures have it at 3.5 to 3.75 in February. And that's where they have interest rates peaking. I mean, I don't see that. I mean, we can all speculate. I think we get a 75 in September, barring any, you know, crazy developments or real weakness in the inflation data. And then I think maybe we get a 25 and a 25. I mean, that's great. That would be, you know, 125 basis points. That would take us to three and a half percent. So here's, um, here's an interesting thought, though. Because of Biden's new spending, they're going to have to fund it, obviously, with new new treasuries right so that's more debt and so like i'm wondering from your perspective is there an incentive for the fed to keep raising rates in a, in a in a way to kind of like you know inflate away the debt i mean that's what we were talking about last year and i think that's where it's going but I mean, what are the interest payments on the us's like 30 trillion plus you know hoard of debt right now what is it like over at least over a trillion per year it's got to be. But what's more concerning is like uh, their, their debt to GDP is about 133%, 138%, something like it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think debt to GDP is the highest that it's ever been. And I think that's the difference between here and the 1970s. Mm. But in the 1970s, I think it was more structural. And I think this is more cyclical and it's more synthetic. I think it's largely due to COVID. I mean, people say, you know, that it really has to do with the money supply. I mean, maybe a little bit, but I don't necessarily think so because in 2008, we had such a big increase in M2 money supply and inflation was nil. It was literally yes. uh, anemic for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. So I actually learned this years later. Uh, but what happened was like the money was created, but it never left the banking system. Like they created liquidity and bought up like toxic assets, but it never made it to the broader market. Whereas this money was literally $4 trillion, let's just helicopter it to everybody. And, they, and then you see the, the ridiculous spending that came right after it. It's, it's complete, two completely different stories. 
Exactly. I mean, whether we're looking at the retailers or we're looking at oil, you know, you can't shut the taps off completely. And, you know, a lot of people go bankrupt and go out of business and then expect it to, you know, hit that same level of capacity or more. I mean, this year, everybody wanted to spend money on services. Last year, it was all about products. You know, people were, you know, building their work from home setups and, you know, buying computers and buying, you know, clothes and buying stuff that they were really able to like enjoy within their homes. And this year, it's been all about services. I mean, people want to travel, you know, airfare went up. Actually, airfare was one of the biggest decliners in the month of July. And I think that's going to continue to go down in August. So um, it's literally products versus services and how consumers are spending their money. But I think that's going to moderate. And I think in 2023, we're going to reach some kind of new normal finally. So I've got an interesting, I don't have the chart with me today, but I, I was looking at it the other day. I was looking at some economic data and consumer spending is up. I think, I think the, the numbers might be a little bit off, but it's something like consumer income was about like 15 trillion. Consumer spending was like 17. And then you look at credit creation, it's freaking off the charts. Yeah, it's it like is. This, yeah, that is worth <laughs> We're not heading in a very good spot, right? So what happens when they have, and, and with these interest rates, what happens when people suddenly stop their spending because they're just, they're broke. They just, and, and, the, and the creditors are like, no, that, that's all the credit you get. And so like spending is just gonna fall off a freaking cliff. Well, I think that um, it's not the Fed we have to watch out for, it's the bond market. I think the bond market's gonna ex tell us exactly that. The yield curve inverted several months ago. I mean, I think the, you know, the difference between the, you know, the twos and the tens is now like, I think like maybe negative 20 basis points. So I think that's telling us something about recession potentially, but I think that the bond market's going to lead. And I think the bond market's going to give us that signal. And that's why myself and a lot of other, you know, financial experts as well think that uh, 2023, we're going to start pricing and cuts. Do you, can you explain the implications of the yield curve? Um um is it inverting i mean the yield curve has um proceeded like an inversion of the yield curve has proceeded almost every single recession like ever but then again i think it's 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 different in this environment i mean do you remember 2019 do you remember the yield curve inverted in the summer of 2019 i mean that was a great year for the stock market the consumer was strong i think it more so has to do with the fed honestly and just the structural economy that we're in. But I mean, we are technically in a recession. We've had two negative quarters of GDP. But again, it's like the weirdest recession ever. Um, and the Federal Reserve is propping up short term yields by, you know, selling short term bonds. So the inverted yield curve is a factor. But we've been seeing this coming for so long, man. It's not anything new. I think that's the the best point right there, it's that the Fed is kind of like pulling at this. Because I think you, if you look at the traditional idea of like the yield, um, the, the, the inversion, it's like the people's outlooks, generally speaking, is, is better in the short term than it is in the long term. And that's why it's scary because you're thinking, oh, 10 years from now, it's going to be worse than it is today, right? But then if it's the Fed and they're kind of like poking things around and like kind of synthetically, you know, making the numbers what they are, then it's like, how much can you read into it? Yeah, I mean, the last few years has been absolutely crazy. I mean, we've had COVID, you know, we've had all these crazy lockdowns. And I mean, even in China, they're still, you know, locking down certain cities. And, you know, we had the, you know, semiconductor shortage. Now we have a semiconductor glut and then everything with the used cars. I mean, it's just, um, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces here. And I think that, you know, when you look at the two-year yield, eventually they are going to have to cut and that's going to lower the two-year yield. 
I'm not sure where expectations are going to be for the 10-year yield. I think they're still going to remain elevated because it's going to take a lot of time for the U.S. to rebuild their supply chain here. So I still think that inflation, like, I don't think that we're going back to zero by any means. I mean, we could, uh, but, you know, the world would look a lot different in, in that scenario. Um, but ultimately, I, I, I would see an uninversion of the yield curve, I think. That's interesting. Looking forward, then, um, what do you see for next year? Because I don't know. I, don't, I think I think we actually spoke about this on an episode like way back, and I said like this was way back, and I said like this was after twenty twenty, and I said twenty twenty one is going to be. I think I might have said it in twenty twenty. I said this year is going to be different uh, in that the um, the retailer the, the retail investors had control of the market in twenty twenty, and they're going to get a wake up call in twenty twenty one. So because there's an adjustment, right? And I'm wondering if we're going to have kind of sort of the same thing now, where it's like. In 22, we have this high inflation environment. And then next year, we're going to have like kind of maybe even deflation because um, a yeah, lot of things are setting that I, up. That's a huge possibility. We're going to see a moderation in inflation, maybe even deflation. Uh, and then we're going to start pricing in those cuts. I truly believe that. Uh, so I think uh, next year is going to be in complete contrast to this year, mm. which was complete contrast to last year. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why peaks and valleys are right next to each other, right? Yeah, this is clearly a volatile period, but I think, I think what I'm getting at is like there is some predictability in it, and it seems like people seem to overreact and overcompensate, but always too late, <laughs> and so you can kind of see it happening just, you know, before it happens. I mean, Sammy, can you just uh, pop up the uh, the CPI? I think now's a good time to look at that. Yeah, please. Is this core CPI or just um, CPI? This is just uh, CPI. So you have, you know, everything here. I mean, you can, you can run through it if you want. I mean, you look at food, that's still like pretty sticky, I would say. But, you know, you look at, you know, 0% month over month gains, uh, you know, for CPI, you see, you know, gasoline going down. And as these comps, as I was saying earlier, as these comps start to filter through, you're going to have a weaker and weaker number. So I think just looking at this, and if you can extrapolate this forward, I mean, the Fed doesn't just want to see one month of inflation moderation. They want to see like three or four. Yeah. So we get that um, eventually. So anecdotally, um, I know because because of my investment in EVs, I know something about the the auto market. And the the news is that the um, the the wholesalers they have massive amounts of supply in the lots, and it's not moving. Like it's not like last year when people are like rushing to buy cars, it's not moving. And the only reason the car prices are high right now is because they've been kind of shrewdly releasing like a lot of 30 at a time. So instead of releasing it all at the same time, they kind of control the supply. And so that's kind of artificially kept the prices high. I feel like next year you'll probably get some really good deals on cars. What do you think? A hundred percent, especially uh, fuel cars, because like you even see it now, like there's a rush to, 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 to fill the market's demand for EVs. And when the Americans aren't stepping up, the Koreans are stepping up, China is like the largest EV market and maker in the world. And they're gonna like fill the void if nobody else does, right? And so like next year, I think there's gonna be a lot of ICE vehicles that are just gonna like flood the market. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that happening. And again, that would be uh, with the demand destruction and you know, as you're saying, you know, supply coming back online that would be very bullish for inflation peaking and that would be bullish for the market. So I think 2023 is going to be a great year. I think we're going to have a shift more so to longer duration assets. I think yields are going to peak. I think next year is going to be uh, completely different to this year. I mean, there's still 
we're still waiting on the resolution of a lot of different things. I mean, who knows what happens with geopolitics? Uh, who knows what happens with, uh, you know, race and inflation? But, um, you know, when you combine, you know, the fundamentals and you combine the technicals and everything that we're looking through, you know, it pays to be ahead of the game. So I don't know if you can say this, but why don't we leave off with uh, what we're doing in the markets? Um, do you want to start or should I? Uh, you can go ahead if you want. Yeah. So I'm, I'd rather, this is a market where I'm not actively trading. Like when I don't know what's going on, I'd rather do nothing. You know, I think I got that from Warren Buffett. He's like, when you don't understand, just do nothing. And, but I'm, but I haven't exited my positions um, because a lot of my companies are growth stocks and then they are kind of setting themselves up for the future. Right. Exactly. And, and you kind of never know when that, when that, um, when that period hits, when, when things just go supernova, like nobody predicted EVs would just like take off in 2020, but it did. And so you don't want to be out of the market when that happens. But so like I'm heavy into EVs, I'm heavy into semis, so are you. And then, so I'm just not moving on these things because I think these are all companies that are establishing themselves for the future. And it could, at any moment it could pop off. These are the best companies in the world. These companies are capitalizing on these growth themes. Uh, I'm with you. I'm sticking with my long-term holdings. I'm a long-term investor. Uh, I believe in these companies. Obviously, they're facing the brunt because we're in a cyclical bear market, but I still think that the secular bull market is intact. So I'm sticking with these names. I mean, technicals and fundamentals are really different because mm. with fundamentals, you like a company and the share price goes down. You like the company more, right? It's more of a value stock, right? But in technicals, if a stock goes down, you like it less because that's just classic trend following, right? That's momentum. So I think during a bull market, uh, technicals can like guide you higher and it can kind of, you know, when you're trend following and you just kind of want to, um, you know, see what's going to have the biggest move, technicals are great. But in this environment, you got to stick with the fundamentals. You got to stick to like the guts of the company. You got to know like, you know, like what they're doing, their balance sheet, their financial position. Do they have pricing power in this inflationary environment? Uh, you know, what are their growth prospects? Um, you know, how much cash they have? What are their debt levels? I mean, there's a million different things that you can look at. Um, yeah. But during times like these, I mean, why make a move right now when everybody is just rushing towards the exits? I mean, I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. Markets go up with the least amount of people in them and down with the most. So right now, I mean, if you're a long-term investor and you got some cash in your pocket, now's a great time to, you know, maybe dollar cost average or, you know, get some great buys on some companies that you've wanted to hold for a very long time. Um, but I wouldn't be doing anything drastic or panicking at all because, uh, you know, to go back to that chart, we're at that 50 month, we're at that 200 week. I mean, this is long-term support. These are the companies that we love. You just got to stick with it. It's been a challenging environment for everybody, but nothing worth having comes easy. I'm going to pose one question for you just because from your that response, I thought it would be interesting. Like, is it possible that the, the general, the general consensus is incorrect in the thinking that, well, it was, it's the, it's what we go back to like the value versus growth kind of thing, right? The assumption is if you take away credit in the market, then growth has less money to work with. And then they're going to kind of suffer as a result, right? But if you look at a lot of the growth companies, especially the mature ones like Tesla, like they don't need credit. They're, they're profitable. NVIDIA is profitable. They're great, right? So I think what if we have this surprising thing where it's like you expect them to not continue growing and yet they do. 
in spite of the environment. And it's like, wouldn't you they want are, to be in those stocks? These are secular themes. These are themes that are in place, whether we're talking about cloud computing or data centers or EVs or the metaverse or cryptocurrency, you know, these sectors are still experiencing double digit, you know, year over year growth. So that's uh, definitely, uh, you know, a fundamental positive there. Um, and these companies, they're profitable in the near term. I mean, we used Apple as an example. It's held up well, but, you know, you look at, at, you know, Amazon or NVIDIA or Meta. I mean, Meta is one of the most profitable companies in the world, yet its share price is down 50%. So I think that there's a lot of inefficiencies in the marketplace. It's not efficient. There's a lot of opportunities. And if you can extend your time horizon to like a year, I mean, I always say have a three to five year time horizon. If you can do that, you'll do very, very well. You just have to be patient. The longer you can wait, uh, the better that it is. And like some people, they're just not cut out to manage their own portfolio. Um, because, you know, I think I was looking through like the JP Morgan guide to investing last year and like the average retail return was like 1% per year. And you say, why is that? I mean, the average return for the market, including dividends as well, like eight to 10%, but it's because they panic buy, they panic sell, uh, you know, they fall for the hype. They check their portfolio every single day when realistically they shouldn't. Um, and that can really bite. So I think during times like these, I mean, you have a thesis, you have to have conviction. I mean, I come on this show and you operate this, the same exact way is I don't want to be like halfway and halfway out. I want to have conviction in what I believe in. And I have a thesis here and I'm sticking by it. Great advice. That's good advice. I think it's a great uh, thing to leave off on. Thanks for coming. You got to come back more often, man. Yeah, man, thanks for having me so much. I really enjoyed it. I always love our conversations. Uh, get a much different perspective a lot of the time, but you know, we're fist bumping all the time. It's uh, you know, we agree on a lot of things here, and uh, I truly believe that we are the contrarians in this market. We've been contrarians and right for like two years. Hey, just look at the videos. <laughs> I mean, what does Warren Buffett say? Be fearful when others are greedy. Greedy when others are fearful. fearful. That's right. Uh, and uh, I think there's definitely a little bit of a demographic shift in terms of a lot of the people that a lot of the smart money that's in the market, I don't think sees the world in the same way that we do um, when it comes to tech and when it comes to these emerging uh, innovations within obviously, you know, like a realistic scope of what the economy looks like. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'd love to come back sometime soon. So there it is. Why don't we have you come back sometime? We'll talk about what your outlook for the future is, like technology-wise and where to be in. Yeah, I'd love, love that. It. Awesome, brother. All right, All goons, right. thanks for watching. Take care. Take care.